0: This is the Transportation Podcast, your B2B show for the best thought leadership in the industry, bringing you education, information, and inspiration only on MarketScale.
1: Just to try to reduce crashes and keep traffic moving smoothly, they're going to want a computer behind the wheel rather than a human.
0: If problems mean more money spent on transportation, it can hurt your bottom line. All the pressure is on the transportation side of things to
2: keep on their marketing campaigns to hire more drivers. That's the biggest stress for the logistics market.
0: Everyone has their ride. Let's hit the road. Welcome to the Market
3: Scale Transportation Podcast. My name is Tyler Kern. I'm your host for today's episode. Thank you so much for joining me here on this episode of the market scale transportation podcast you know this morning i was waiting for my train uh, that picks me up near my house and takes me uh, to work here in downtown dallas where the market scale studios and offices are and as i was waiting for it i was looking around at some of the other people around me and you know most people have earbuds in they're listening to something or they're reading a book or a magazine or they're looking at their phones uh, that's the majority of what people do nowadays at, uh, at bus stops, right, or at, at train stops. Uh, so that's what I was doing. I was looking around at people, and I was just kind of thinking that uh, for transportation, uh, it's such a big part of all of our lives, right? We all at some point have to move from one place to another place, uh, even if you work from home and you don't have to deal with the daily commute. On some level, at some point you leave your house, you go get Starbucks, you go meet friends for dinner, uh, and you have to get from place to place, whether that is driving your own car, whether that is taking a subway or a bus or the train somewhere or taking an Uber, you know, using a rideshare like Uber or Lyft or something along those lines. Everybody at some point has to move from place to place. But what strikes me is that it's very rare that we think about how can we make this more efficient? How can I make this easier on myself? Or uh, how can this process be uh, more convenient for me? in a way that uh, that will set me up for having a better day or set my trip up for more success. Let's say you're flying somewhere for the holidays and you're thinking about, okay, uh, sometimes flying around the holidays can be a miserable experience because of how busy airports are. Um, but very rarely do we actually think through and create a plan for how can I do some work here on the front end to make my experience better on the back end. Um, And so I was thinking about this as I was standing there waiting for my train today, and it actually uh, is kind of inspiring the topic for today's podcast. Uh, With our first guest today, it's going to be Rachel Hout, and she is the executive director of the Transit Innovation Partnership in New York City. And what they're doing is trying to come up with innovative ideas for how to fix transportation problems, mass transit problems in New York City. And a lot of that is going to be a public-private partnership between the government agencies that run transit in that City and then uh, partnering with startups and with um, tech companies to basically create. Um, these creative solutions for how to fix problems that are plaguing their transit system. So they're trying to devise ways on the front end to make things more convenient for everybody and to create less headaches on the back end uh, for government and for government agencies that have to deal with these particular problems. They're battling certain issues there in that city, such as crumbling infrastructure in some areas. Uh, You'll hear Rachel talk about how some of the infrastructure in the subway system is over 100 years old at this point, so that presents particular challenges. Uh, And then in my second feature of today's episode We're going to be talking to Ken Jenkins, and he's an aviation expert, and part of what he's going to talk about is how you can best plan your holiday travels to uh, avoid some of the headaches that oftentimes come with trying to travel and trying to fly somewhere around this time of year there's a lot of information at your disposal that you might not know about that he as an aviation expert uh, is keenly aware of so that's what today's episode is going to be about creating more efficient and effective travel for you as you're trying to get from place to place uh, i think it's a really interesting topic and something that i think about on a regular basis and you might be thinking about is potentially you listen to this podcast while sitting in rush hour traffic Thinking maybe there's a better way that I could go about doing this. Maybe it's just a quick check of Google Maps before you leave your house to see what the fastest route uh, to see what the fastest route to work is that particular day. Something along those lines. So hopefully this is a very interesting and informative episode as people consider transportation and what it means for them as they uh, use transportation for their particular needs, whatever that might be. Whether it's just across town for a cup of coffee with a friend or across the country to visit friends and family for the holidays, whatever it might be. Hopefully this episode helps inform your decisions and helps make your life just a little bit easier this holiday season. So coming up first is my interview with Rachel Hout. And I'm really excited about this interview and this conversation, and I think it's really interesting because she's the executive director of the Transit Innovation Partnership uh, that's trying to help solve some of the problems that New York City is having with their mass transit. And I'll let her explain more about what the Transit Innovation Partnership is. But the basic premise of this interview is that there is a public private partnership that's trying to be formed in New York City between government agencies that oversee mass transit and then startup companies uh, that have ideas and maybe some. Innovations that could help public transport uh, solve some of the massive issues that it's facing at the moment. So that's the backstory behind this interview, and it's why I'm really excited to get to share it with you. So without further ado, let's get to that interview with Rachel Hout. She is the Executive Director of the Transit Innovation Partnership. Rachel, thank you so much for joining the Market Scale Transportation Podcast today.
1: Thank you so much for having me, Tyler. So we're going to talk about the
3: Transit Innovation Partnership here in a second, but I'm curious just to hear from you uh, to kind of set the stage. How is the current system of public transportation failing to meet the needs of citizens in New York?
1: Well, today in New York City, we have a public transit system in crisis. We have record high delays in our subway system, although there's been a, a bit of a dip recently, which should be applauded. And that works out to around 50 to 60,000 delays per month. And our on-time performance is around 70%. Just to give you a sense of what other major metropolitan centers have as far as their metrics, Tokyo has a 100% on-time performance rating. And most other major sy- systems are between 90 and 98%. And so this is clearly a challenge, not just to worker productivity, and to the viability of the city, but to the attractiveness of New York City as a whole. If we wanna sustain our position as a major economic hub, making sure that people want to live here, that it has a reputation and is reliable for a place that's easy to get around is is critical. The the other metric I'll point to is around buses and people forget about buses sometimes, but the the congestion and traffic in the city has reached an all-time high, and bus speeds in Midtown are sometimes as low as 3.4 miles per hour, which is essentially the speed, the walking speed of the average New Yorker. So we also have a challenge there with decreasing ridership, and we know that we need to turn around these trends.
3: Absolutely. So a- as the Internet of Things has grown and our cities are becoming smarter and more connected, it feels to me like public transportation seems to be somewhat left behind by that movement.
1: That's accurate, and it's not just public transport transportation. It's incredibly challenging to connect and bring those sensors and bring that level of connectivity to existing city assets and infrastructure, because often that infrastructure is quite dated and it takes a significant upgrade and a significant amount of investment to bring it into the digital age and in the case of the subway sometimes we're talking about infrastructure that's over a hundred years old and so these are analog mechanical systems they are not easily connected to um, cloud-based systems for predictive analytics for example but we know that at the same time we're seeing this in industry and we're seeing this in the IOT market in the transportation and mobility market in artificial intelligence we know that there's enormous potential to improve on this. And that's part of what we're trying to focus on improving.
3: So at the Transit Innovation Partnership, uh, you guys are are seeking to help remedy some of these issues and some of these problems. Can you explain to me just what is the Transit Innovation Partnership?
1: Yes, the Transit Innovation Partnership is a public-private initiative of the Partnership for New York City, which is the largest business leadership organization in New York, and the MTA, the Metropolitan Transportation Authority. And Our goal is for this initiative to serve as a vehicle for private sector support, donations, contributions, pro bono work to help to improve the public transit system. And we have a number of initiatives underway. The first that we've announced is the Transit Tech Lab that focuses on specific challenges identified by New York City Transit, the part of the MTA that focuses on running the subways and the buses and ask startups to submit their technology for consideration in order to lead to a potential pilot that helps to improve performance and customer service.
3: Uh, And the deadline for applications for that Transit Tech Lab is actually uh, coming up soon, isn't it?
1: It is. And we highly encourage companies to take a look at transitinnovation.org. The deadline is November 30th. And the process includes not just evaluation by some of the leading VCs in the market and MTA subject matter experts, but companies that are chosen to take part in this program go through an eight-week accelerator that's not like a typical startup accelerator in the sense of talking about here's how to raise money or create your cap table. Instead, it hones in on companies that are interested in working with a large transit system the mta is the largest public transit system in north america and provides them with a hands-on opportunity to do a deep dive into the technology and operating environment of the mta to learn about the needs and requirements that they have and then to adapt their technology to meet them and if that process is is successful they have an opportunity to engage in a year-long pilot with the MTA, where they are able to deploy their technology at scale.
3: So you seem like an ideal person, really, to head up this effort, mainly because you've you've had a foot in both worlds in the past. Um, how do you feel like your experience uh, has given you some insight into this project, and maybe ways that other people uh, wouldn't have wouldn't have experienced? You know, like uh, you. you... You really headed up the uh, the massive efforts to redesign the ny.gov website back in 2014, and that included a little bit of uh, of a partnership with the uh, with the public sector, excuse me, with the private sector as well. Uh, so how is how have those experiences really helped inform uh, how you've gone about this process?
1: I've been very thankful to have served as a chief digital officer for the city and for the state, and in both of those roles, it it was critical to have support from private sector partners. In government, you're often working with uh, extremely limited budgets, despite what the, the headlines may say, especially in digital tools and digital engagement and looking at these types of modernizations and where public private partnerships can be helpful is it provides an opportunity for a company to show positive corporate social responsibility and to give back to their city and to help shape the city and make it more successful and shape that legacy. And it's also an opportunity for government to try something new that perhaps would be much more challenging if if it um, had to be funded in a traditional way and would take much longer through traditional means. And instead we're able to essentially get to market faster get to launch much quicker by working with motivated aligned partners. And we're able to really shift the, um, the landscape of the city. And uh, another specific example could be that when I served as chief digital officer, we often asked the public what they would like to see in the city. And in the digital realm, it was almost always free public Wi Fi. We would love to have more free public Wi Fi. And so we always had that wish list in the back of our minds. And when the franchise agreement, that governs all the payphones and at the time there were more than 7000 payphone kiosks across the five boroughs when that franchise agreement was about to expire we began talking about you know how could we reimagine this and while it would have been difficult as a single individual to say you know how can we rethink this and could this technology acknowledge the changes in how we're connecting and communicating with one another and potentially move towards for example, a mesh Wi-Fi network or another another system to connect people better, what we did was we created a design challenge called Reinvent Payphones. And we invited members of the design community to suggest not just their ideas, but build actual prototypes. And it was absolutely eye-opening. And by inspiring both the public workers and public officials, as well as the uh, the private sector and everyday New Yorkers, we were able to see this vision of here's here's how this infrastructure can really be transformed. And interestingly, the, the first and second place winners of that challenge went on to found actual companies that in turn created value and jobs, uh, one of them being Link NYC, which is now across the city today. And so it's, It's exciting to see how being open, being collaborative with the private sector as someone who's working in government, can can help to produce outcomes that are that are better um, and more inclusive than perhaps we would have come out with on our own.
3: So, in your mind, what does success look like in the in the long term? How does the day of a citizen of New York City uh, look differently uh, if the Transit Innovation Partnership is a massive success?
1: Well, there's we have a number of initiatives underway for the Transit Tech Lab, with the Bus Challenge, for example we're focusing on solutions that help buses to move faster and more efficiently. So one metric that we would look to is, after a year of a pilot, being able to show measurable improvement in bus speeds, where the pilot was deployed if it was only deployed in a certain area. And that that would be a very big win, being able to have a measurable increase in reliability and speed, and making buses more attractive and more interesting to people so that they take them is, is critical not only for everyday customer service, but looking long-term at the transit system, it's important that we turn around declining ridership on, on buses and other public and subways, for example, because that ridership, while subway fares are heavily subsidized and they are already at a huge discount, they are a very important part of the revenue structure of the transit system. And so that's why, even something as simple as as improving the speed of a bus and making it more reliable can have a much, a much larger impact. Uh, on, on the subway side, what we would hope for would be, in the short term, customer service improvements by being able to more clearly and accurately predict what will happen when there's a subway delay. If you ride the subway in New York City, you know that there are countdown clocks. Those countdown clocks are only... Um, engineered to predict good service. They only work assuming that things are moving normally. So when there's a delay, the numbers don't change in the way that we would want them to so that people can actually predict that delay and perhaps make different choices about how they're getting somewhere. So first it would be customer service and then longer term performance in terms of how can we bring even more data to the operations of the subway system
3: and we've talked a lot about uh, how you feel about the you know the startup companies that you would be reaching out to that you'd be kind of partnering with and joining hands with uh, with the government agencies but if you could just kind of summarize uh, what you want them to hear from you in this particular podcast you know what's the specific message that you want companies to hear uh, from you as the executive director
1: great well first, I would say that this is an opportunity if you've wanted to work with a transit agency, but you've thought it's going to take too long, it's never going to happen, they're too bureaucratic. We have designed this program to counteract all of those assumptions, which sometimes have been true in the past. And this will bring you to a pilot quickly. The pilot timeline would kick off in June, which is an accelerated timeline for this type of scale and this uh, this level of involvement it will also provide an opportunity for you to get your technology in front of key decision makers at the MTA and that's an invaluable opportunity to make them aware of what you can do perhaps it's relevant for this challenge perhaps it's relevant for something down the line and having your technology in the backs of their mind could help to create a lay- an opportunity later on down the line so i would encourage companies in mobility, but also in adjacent spaces who are interested in getting involved in transit to apply. And I want to make it clear that you don't have to be a transit company, you don't have to be a transportation or mobility company to apply to the transit tech challenge. There are a lot of data challenges and AI companies, machine learning companies, predictive analytics companies are welcome. Also, companies that do a lot of work with video, computer vision, machine learning in those respects, sensor companies We welcome all of those and we are receptive and we're happy to answer any questions that you have. And again, you can learn more at transitinnovation.org.
3: Absolutely. And again, I mentioned it earlier, but you seem like the perfect person having been in both of these worlds to really bring them together and to to make sure that this partnership is, uh, is successful. That is Rachel Hout. She's the Executive Director of the Transit Innovation Partnership. Thank you so much for joining me today, Rachel.
1: Thank you so much for having me.
3: All right, I hope you enjoyed that interview with Rachel Hout. Coming up next are our Market Scale Transportation News
0: Minutes, brought to you today by Sam Mosier. Sam, take it away. These are your Transportation News Minutes, brought to you by Market Scale. For years, self driving trucks have been seen as a coming threat to America's 3.5 million truckers but pilot programs and recent data suggest self-driving electric trucks may actually help the industry in many ways. Transportation and Logistics International Magazine reports self-driving electric trucks may solve the industry's problems with safety, costs, and driver shortages. The American Trucking Association said these vehicles can also help the environment in driver health and wellness. A trucker can use their vehicle's autonomous mode, essentially as a second driver. This will allow the trucker to rest and avoid fatigue. A recent Morgan Stanley study found autonomous trucks could save the industry $168 billion a year in labor and fuel costs, prevented accidents, and increased productivity. The Atlantic reports self-driving trucks will not make full trips for many years. Pilot programs from Embark and Uber have drivers bringing freight to the highway. From there, a self-driving truck with a safety driver in case of emergency travels to a transfer hub, and a driver then finishes the shipment. A report from Uber's program suggests saved costs will increase trucking jobs. The logic is that saved costs will lower the cost of freight, demand will increase, and more drivers will be needed to make hauls to and from transfer hubs. Now to take our focus from the highway to the big city, new evidence in New York City shows how public transportation greatly affects property value. According to Forbes, the first phase of the new Second Avenue subway line opened in Manhattan's already expensive Upper East Side in January 2017. Since then, the prices of condominiums and co-ops near the new stations have increased by about 6%. For national context, on average, proximity to public transportation increases a house's value by 0.6%. Real estate broker Elliot Bogod, writing for Forbes, says investors interested in the Upper East Side should buy now because prices will surely continue to increase drastically over time. New York Governor Andrew Cuomo has taken notice of the value added by public transportation. Earlier this year, he proposed a value capture measure that would impose taxes on real estate owners near public transportation to help fund the Metropolitan Transportation Authority. And lastly, interesting data has emerged about this year's Thanksgiving holiday travel season. According to WLWT Cincinnati, The Ohio State Highway Patrol reported its safest Thanksgiving travel season in 27 years, over five days from Wednesday, November 21st to Sunday, November 25th. Six people were killed in crashes. That number ties the 1991 record for Ohio's safest Thanksgiving holiday weekend. Last year, OSHP reported 22 traffic fatalities over the five-day Thanksgiving holiday weekend. Patrol Superintendent and Colonel Paul A. Pride said OSHP was pleased to see a decrease in lives lost, but it can't settle until the number of fatalities is zero. The Transportation Security Administration also had a record-breaking travel season. In a press release, the TSA announced this year's Thanksgiving travel period was its busiest in its 17-year history. From Friday, November 16th to Monday, November 26th, it screened more than 25.6 million people, a 6% increase over 2017. Sunday, November 25th, was the busiest day in TSA history. It screened more than 2.7 million people just on that day. I'm Sam Ozier, and these have been your Market Scale Transportation Minutes.
3: Coming up next is my interview with Ken Jenkins. He's an aviation expert, and he's the owner and founder of Ken Jenkins, LLC. And he and his team specializes primarily in crafting disaster response plans. But today, he's joining the Market Scale Transportation Podcast to help us navigate the tricky waters of traveling over the holiday season. So, Ken, thank you so much for joining the Market Scale Transportation Podcast today, sir. You're welcome, Connor.
2: Good to be with you,
3: So, AAA projected ahead of the Thanksgiving holiday that 54 million Americans would be traveling at least 50 miles for that particular holiday, the highest such figure since 2000. And I'm wondering, what are some potential reasons why more Americans might be traveling uh, for these holidays?
2: Uh, it's a very good question. And and one of the main reasons is uh, fuel prices are down. And so certainly transportation by car is going to be uh, really big. And I think you're going to see that also in air travel as well. It was huge for Thanksgiving uh, for the commercial airlines. And I think the same will apply for Christmas, too.
3: So yeah, as we look ahead to Christmas and uh, and the holidays, uh, we know that a lot of people are going to fly and be on the move for the holidays to go visit friends and family. Uh, what are some particular days maybe that are known as, as better travel days than other days? You know, if people are trying to you know make some plans for uh, for avoiding maybe high crowds or something along those lines what days are good travel days
2: well and that's a great question because it will really depend on the airport uh, or the city and location you're traveling from and then of course the day of the week um, the closer you get to Christmas um, and, and those are going to be the obvious days where people are starting to take their time off uh, where holidays may Um, or days off may come in, vacation days may come into play. Christmas Day, ironically, is usually a very good day to travel. Of course, that means you're not there with your family on Christmas Eve and not certainly for Christmas morning, but Christmas Day is typically a good day. If you have the opportunity and have the time off, um, four or five days before Christmas uh, is, is good, is a good time to go. Every day after that, say from the 19th or 20th forward, each day is going to get busier and busier um, depending on the day of the week, how it falls in relationship to the weekend and whatnot.
3: So what are some of the most popular travel destinations? Where are more people going than uh, than maybe other places? So what airports should people expect to be busier maybe than others?
2: Well, and and, you know, we we can look at it by popular destination, um, which typically are going to be your west coast and east coast. And when we look at east coast, we're including Florida. I think most people when you say east coast tend to think northeast. Um, But Florida is going to be big, usually your Hawaii warm destinations, Hawaii, Mexico, are also going to be big. But the thing to really, I think, be be careful with, if you're traveling, regardless of where you're going this year, is to know and understand the size and scope of your airport and its capabilities. Are they used to such a high influx um, of passengers around Christmas time? Um, If you're used to flying out of a small airport on a Monday, and it's typically not busy. It's probably not gonna look the same if it's a Monday before Christmas. And there are lots of, of tips and tricks that we can discuss about how to find that out beforehand if you'd like to.
3: Yeah, well, let, let's walk through that. What are some ways that, uh, that holiday travels, travelers can really craft a plan and prepare and research uh, their different uh, airports so they know exactly what challenges they could come up against?
2: Okay, well, and and that's an excellent question, and if you are willing to do the due diligence, if you will, and and I certainly am, you know, I travel a lot for work, Tyler, um, but I also, I I say, play the game, play the system well, and that I look ahead before I even leave the house. Um, So from a website perspective, one of the the most valuable resources for everybody to look at is the Transportation Security Administration website, or tsa.gov. And what they have within the website is, they have great information, um, but one that um, um, everyone may find um, beneficial to them is a travel checklist. And in the checklist, it even gets into the size and dimensions, not only of luggage, but how many ounces of liquid you can have, and how much can be in the quart size bag of liquid you're allowed to, to bring in. There's also, for your mobile devices, an application from the TSA called My TSA. And with my TSA, it's, it's an app, you can go in by airport and find out um, wait times for security lines, which ones are longer, which ones are shorter, um, and anticipate ahead of time what, what you're gonna run into. So those are two really, really good, good sites to look at. Our TSA is one good website. The other one is your own airport website. So I, I live in Dallas, Fort Worth. It's a major international hub. They have an excellent website that gives you uh, not only security wait times by the terminal, but they also tell you about their parking situation And if you were gonna park up close how much it's gonna cost what the space availability is down to remote parking um, And so that, that's another thing to look at most airports have a website that are gonna give you general information about parking and security wait times So I would check the TSA website in your local airport before you leave the house um, for your destination
3: that's really interesting. It sounds like you can reduce headaches on the back end by doing a little bit of work on the front side just to make sure that you have all the information available uh, going into a particular situation. So uh, that that sounds like uh, a lot of information is provided, more so than even I've realized that, that you could get. Um, so it, it's possible you kind of answered this question, but I think a lot of people have different opinions or different answers when you ask how early they need to get to the airport. I know some of that is, you know, are you flying internationally or not? and you know and right. now we'll will depend on what your tsa wait time is going to be or something along those lines but just sure. as a general rule uh, how early would you recommend getting to a particular airport or maybe maybe let's just say dfw international airport how early would sure. you recommend getting to dfw for a flight to say new york or miami or something along those lines
2: well, and, and, and it's an, again, an excellent question. And I have to laugh because we had this discussion with family members at Thanksgiving and uh, that were staying at our house and came in for the holiday. And there was discussion of when they were going to get to the airport for their flight. And I just shook my head in disbelief. They're like, oh, we're going to get there an hour and a half beforehand. And I'm like, really? The Sunday after Thanksgiving is one of the busiest days for air travel. You don't get there an hour and a half beforehand, get there at least two hours. And I know that sounds like a long time, and it is, it is a long time. But the question that I would ask everybody, and I ask my friends and, and share with them when they travel, I said, think about what frustrates you most about traveling. And most will tell you it's the long wait lines, it's trying to park, um, get all your luggage, you know, check your bags or carry it through security. It's all those things. So why would you add to that? the getting there, pushing the envelope, if you will, Tyler, getting there a shorter time ahead of your flight, and then having to rush and have that additional frustration. So I always say two hours, and that's that's to get through security. So it's not two hours before your flight. So if my flight was at 10 a.m., I'm probably arriving at the airport at 7.30, maybe 8 o'clock in the morning, two hours before departure. And that gives me plenty of time to check a bag if I'm going to do that, get through security, Go have a cup of coffee or some of some beverage of your choice before you leave. And most airports today have quite a, a bit of, of um, things to do. There are a lot of activities from shopping and, and nice restaurants and things like that. So I always looked at what frustrates you most and if that's one of them, you know, the um, the long lines, allow yourself the time to get through it. Some other things though that people don't think about, and and I certainly do one because I, again I travel a lot is If parking and trying to find a parking place or pay for parking is is an issue for you, think about getting a Lyft or Uber or uh, some shared ride service. Because oftentimes they're going to drop you right off at the door of the entryway of where you need to go to to check in for your flight. You don't have to worry about parking. The cost, particularly if you're going to be gone for three or four days, Um, The cost alone may, you may even save money by doing that, or it's just going to cost you a few dollars more, Mm -hmm. but it's going to save you a lot in terms of frustration. Um, So that's another thing. Um, And then, of course, if you're familiar with the TSA.gov website, you look at their travel checklist, follow their tips for what to wear, uh, what not to wear, things that are going to hang you up, if you will, as you go through the security line so that you don't get pulled aside for secondary screening, things like that will all shorten the times um i mean there are a whole host of things um as i think about this when we go you know go forward and and with christmas uh it always amazes me tyler to see people come through the security line with wrapped christmas gifts it's probably my biggest pet peeve and it is because if it's wrapped and they can't determine what's inside it they're going to unwrap your package Mm. and that's going to hold everybody up in line and everybody's you know watching you and you're held up and everybody else is held up in line So uh, another thing to do is to take all your packages and keep them wrapped, but send them via UPS or Federal Express or the mail service. Um, And then you can leave them wrapped they get there ahead of time. You don't have to worry about carrying them on the plane, things of that nature. So lots of little tricks like that that can help you get through security much faster that way.
3: Boy, that's great advice because nobody wants to end up as that person at the front of the line that everyone, you know, is, uh, you know, drilling holes in the back of their head with their yeah. eyeballs. You know, nobody wants to be that person. But so frequently, people just make mistakes about things that they aren't aware of. So oh, sure. Yeah, that, sure. Yeah, I don't think people intend to do that necessarily, but but no, that's how it ends all. up.
2: Well, as I mentioned, you know, I, I, I do travel quite a bit. And the other day when I was, um, I, don't, I think I was coming out of New York, um, I got pulled aside, my, or a piece of my luggage did for secondary screening. And I thought, are you kidding? That's never screened. I had a bottle of water in there. I forgot. <laughs> And, and then, of course, I'm looking at him and I'm like, I'm so sorry. I know better. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, the reason I did it, in all fairness, I was late to the airport mm-hmm. because of work, and I didn't get there ahead of time, and I felt rushed, and I forgot. And there you go.
3: You of all people, Ken. I know, people. I know. I <laughs> know. It
2: happens to the best of us.
3: It absolutely does. So are, are there... There are people, obviously, who don't travel all the time. That maybe traveling mm-hmm. this time of year is a is a special thing. And you mentioned the TSA checklist and and uh, the the recommendations. What are some of those recommendations, maybe, that stand out to you? In addition to not bringing presents or something along those lines, maybe uh, slip on shoes or, or you know some, oh, sure. something like that that will help people uh, glide through security a little bit quicker.
2: Sure. And um, for example. Um, I have a yearly holiday blog post that I have, and one of the things, in the and it comes from the TSA primarily, and that's to dress appropriately. And to think about things that are going to, you're gonna walk through a metal detector. So remove as much metal as you can before one, um, for ladies, for example, don't wear all your bracelets on the flight or put them in your purse until you get through security and then put them on. Um, oftentimes you, uh, uh, men and women may have metal um, in their shoes and they don't know that. So if you have rubber soled, uh, shoes that slip on and off is better than tied because they, those take just a little bit longer. Um, if you're wearing a heavy jacket, take that off and let it go through security, put it on a bin, don't try to wear it. That's now if your TSA pre-check, which is a, an additional level of, um, security that you pass actually beforehand, It's you fill out an application and you're vetted through um, the Transportation Security Administration, then you may be able to leave your belt on, for example, in your shoes, and you don't have to take your computer out of your bag, things like that. So everything I'm recommending now is for people who are not necessarily TSA pre-check. So the more metal you can take off of you, um, certainly the better. And then have your electronics compartmentalized in your bag. So if you have to pull them out, they're easy to get out. Your liquids in a one quart size bag and all of this information is also found on the tsa site but um, less is more when it comes to dress and still appropriate attire don't get me wrong you yeah. <laughs> know um, flip-flops i wouldn't i'm not a big proponent of flip-flops even if you're going to cancun or hawaii that's just a safety thing if there was an emergency on your flight and you had to evacuate you don't want to be wearing flip-flops you need good shoes on that are rubber soled. Um, that can help you evacuate an aircraft quickly if possible. I have to do my safety plug there for you, time.
3: Sure, absolutely. Yeah, you got to have those, uh, those contingency planes always always in the back of your mind and keeping them in mind when you're planning uh, for trips. You mentioned TSA pre-check, and I'm, I'm curious, if you're somebody that maybe travels just once or twice a year, is it worth it to do the TSA pre-check? Is it worth that extra cost and that vetting, or would you recommend that people just uh, just go through the normal security procedures if they're just a once or twice a year flyer?
2: Well, I I think either is fine provided you do your due diligence. And it really comes down to your individual, what I'm going to say, individual level of frustration. If you fly once or twice a year, but security is really a hassle for you and you just don't like it because you just feel like it's cumbersome, then reduce the frustration and anxiety. Apply for TSA PreCheck. If you fly internationally, and I'll tell you, this is what I think is even the better deal. Um, If you fly internationally at all, there's a program called Global Entry and when you apply for global entry, and it takes a while to, to get approved, Tyler, for that. You fill out an online op- application. You have to go to the airport, in many cases, for an actual in-person interview. But once you're approved for global entry, it helps you through customs and immigration when you come internationally. The byproduct of that, though, is you also get TSA pre-check. Mm. So it comes with it. So, um, if you do fly internationally, I'd look at global entry and then it's like a twofer. You get global entry and TSA pre-check. If most of your travel is domestic, then I'd certainly go with TSA pre-check. You typically don't take off your shoes, your belt. You can leave your computer, your iPad, your phone, and your, in your briefcase or purse. Um, I, I find it very easy. Uh, So I like it. But then again, as I said, I I travel quite a bit. So really individual preference. I like to look at it from a frustration level. What frustrates you? What can you do to eliminate the frustration?
3: Yeah, you know, I, I, you know, I've, I'm, I'm married. I love my wife, but one thing that she cannot really stand all that well is lines and long lines and having to wait. So, uh, measuring her frustration level and the uh, maybe the headache that that would uh, help solve with her and with and later on with me, I think maybe TSA pre-check is a is a good and, idea. You know,
2: and and you mentioned the lines, and I have to share with you, there are times where TSA pre-check can be a, a, a little frustrating mm-hmm. in the respect that. I've gone out to DFW, and the TSA pre-check line is wrapped around the wall, so to speak, and the general line isn't.
3: Interesting. And, I mean,
2: it's wide open. Interesting. And but you have the ability as a TSA pre-check person to go into the general line and just walk <laughs> through. Right. But then you have to take your shoes off and your belt off and pull your computer and your liquids out. But you still get through security faster. Mm-hmm. It doesn't work the other way. If you're general, meaning you're not. TSA PreCheck. You can't just opt to go to TSA PreCheck. So, you know, sometimes it's frustrating and you say, well, I'll take, I'll take my shoes off on my belt, but that line's shorter. I'm going to do that.
3: Sure. And as we talk about long lines and, you know, a lot of people heading to the airport, how do uh, airlines, from their perspective, how do they prepare for such an influx of travelers this time of the year? Do they hire more staff? Um, or or how, how exactly are they preparing for this, uh, for this rush of travelers for the holiday season?
2: Now, each, each airline is, is different, but they certainly know ahead of time uh, what the forecast is or projected number of passengers on any given day for any given flight. So, all airlines have this information and they adjust their staffing accordingly. accordingly. So, they may extend part-time employees to full or um, bring in volunteer management employees to help uh, police the lines, if you will. You know, if you're standing in a line, somebody may come up and just say, you know, hey, what are you in line for? Oh, I just want to check in. No, do you have a boarding card? Then you can step off to the side. You don't really have to wait in line. So the, there are things like that that the airlines. Each airline's different in how they handle it, um, but many just try to get try to get people out of lines they don't need to be in.
3: So what about you know, when when you consider that uh, that there're going to be more flights, maybe in the air, um, are there more precautions put into how airlines look after uh, planes? is there a, uh, a more increased inspection schedule, or um, are they are they inspected more often, or are they more regularly maintained than maybe normal? Uh, or is there anything that, that airlines do to make sure that no major accidents occur in the air uh, over this holiday season?
2: Well, an excellent question, and the first thing I'd share is that air, airline safety certainly is certainly at, at, at a high right now. It's just been, the accident rate is the lowest it's been, um, and, and and recorded history that I'm aware of it so it's it's we have commercial airline has a great safety record with that said though during the holidays there are more flights uh, the airlines are doing everything they can to maintain their planes and they do so because if you have a flight that has a mechanical issue and is canceled all of those people and you can be looking at hundreds of people may have no other plane to get on because everything's full so from a maintenance standpoint the airlines are doing everything they can to keep their fleet in tip-top shape. Primarily, I think what you'll see from many of the carriers, Tyler, is not so much an increase in in flying or number of flights, but the changing of equipment. And by that, what I mean is on those popular destinations, whatever those popular destinations are, if they normally fly what's called a narrow-body aircraft that might hold 150 to 180 people, the airline may switch and put in a larger plane that isn't typically going to be full on that holiday and use a larger plane and then take the smaller plane on another route. So they may adjust their capacity, uh, seat capacity, if you will, on the route, depending on the popularity. You'll see quite a bit of that, but that doesn't impact the safety uh, or the maintenance schedule. It's simply a better use of resources for that particular holiday. And they're very adept at doing that. Um, And looking at their fleet, saying what type of aircraft fits better for that route, for that day of the week, for that holiday. And those are all things that go on behind the scenes that passengers, like you and I, never see. Um, It's really quite interesting to see. It's like a a huge uh, game of chess. And what's the smartest move to make to be the most efficient uh, in terms of seat capacity and availability for a route?
3: Well, there you go. That is uh, everything you need to make sure that you have a uh,
2: <laughs> and more than you wanted to know. Probably,
3: <laughs> no. I I think that's great info to have, just to you know put your mind at ease in lots of different ways. You know, now you know uh, you. From this podcast, you know, okay, here's where I can go check to see how long lines are, how long my wait's going to be, here's what time I should get to the airport, and everything on down to you know that the planes are being regularly maintained and taken care of, and so uh, this should be your ultimate guide to putting your mind at ease for uh, for traveling throughout the Christmas season.
2: Um, well, thank you. I, I, I hope so, and I'd be remiss if I didn't share one, one last tip, and um, you, this is really one of those where you have to really check with the airline to see mm-hmm. Um, but, for example, most airlines today group, uh, board by a group number. Uh, it's At American Airlines, it's Group 1 through 9, I believe they have. Southwest has letters and the numbers within like A1 through 30 and then A31 through 60 and things like that. The further back you are in the boarding process, Tyler, the less likely you're going to be able to, to put your bag in the overhead, particularly at Christmas because people are flying um they they want to carry everything on they're worried about having something checked so keep that in mind if your group for example on american group maybe five or six i would consider checking the luggage mm. but what the airlines don't all share and not all airlines do this like spirit for example has a fee for check luggage and carry-on luggage but many carriers if you have to check your bag at the gate because there's no more carry-on space they'll check your bag for free And so you save that expense. And the other nice thing about that is there's a, a, on the jet bridge, which is what you walk down to board the aircraft, there's a door with a a chute, if you will, off to the side where the the airport operations agent will take your bag and they'll put it on the chute and it goes down to the ramp and the ramp agent picks up the bag and puts it in the plane. Not always the case in what I'm about to say, but oftentimes the last bag on the plane is oftentimes the first bag off the flight. So it may, not always, but may shorten your wait time to baggage claim, and you didn't have to pay to have it checked. So just kind of a little, little tip there. You can call ahead and ask the airline if they have that. You know, if there's not enough room, can I check my bag for free? Um, and it can save you a few dollars.
3: That is remarkable information. There you go. That's why we have Ken Jenkins, the aviation expert on the Market Scale Transportation Podcast for nuggets like that. Nuggets of wisdom you won't get anywhere else. Ken, thank you so much for joining us today on the Market Scale Transportation Podcaster.
2: You're welcome, Tyler. Nice to talk with you.
3: All right, that is all for this episode of the Market Scale Transportation Podcast. Thank you so much for listening today, and thank you to my guests, Rachel Hout and Ken Jenkins, for joining me on the show today. For more great content like this from thought leaders across all different industries, head over to marketscale.com. There you can find more podcasts and written content across 14 different industries, and I'm sure you'll find something else there to enjoy. But until next time, I've been your host, Tyler Kern. Thank you so much for listening.